I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. I'm Angelie Preston. We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is What's Next. A dedicated hour to have important conversations about the issues facing the marginalized and underrepresented communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truth. What's Next continues our mission to discuss race, equity, and the common concerns of Buffalo's East Side and beyond. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. This morning on What's Next, we're talking with Jennifer Rizzo Choi. She's the executive director of the International Institute of Buffalo. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. You come in at a time where there's a lot of discussion about um, a lot of things that do revolve around the International Institute, including, of course, a lot of conversation about asylum seekers here in Western New York. And that's something we can get into. But I think I'd like to also have a just a general conversation about the International Institute. It comes up from time to time for a lot of different reasons. And it, one of the things that surprised me when I was just doing some quick research here, the how long the International Institute of Buffalo has been around. I know, over a century. We're a staple in the community at this point. We've right. always been a welcoming place for all the foreign-born newcomers to Buffalo. And it's interesting when we think about a century of foreign-born people coming to Western New York. Um, my goodness. I mean, you're talking about a lot of people who are now entrenched, families that are entrenched, that have been here for multiple generations, and probably you don't even think of them in that light, that they were, I mean, of course, my family was an immigrant family as well, back from the 19th century, but it, it, it does kind of show you how time kind of washes over uh, immigrants who come to Western New York and become a part of this community. Absolutely. I mean, you know, Buffalo's moniker is the city of good neighbors. We're really, I think, because of the Institute's place in this, we're really the Ellis Island of Western New York. We are the place that everyone has come through. You know, you think back to like my family, you know, my father's roots came from Italy. My grandfather came on a boat here. So the Italians, the Irish, the Germans, all coming in the 20s and 30s. Then post-World War II, refugees, Jewish refugees coming, going into the Vietnam years. We have Vietnamese refugees, people coming from um, Yugoslavia, the former Yugoslav Republic, you know, so Kosovars and Serbians and Bosnians, all the way down to today's refugees, Iraqis, Syrians, Ukrainians, all those folks coming in waves. Buffalo has been a place that's welcomed all of them. And we actually are so diverse as a community compared to even other places around the country. Not to jump ahead too much to where I want to go with this conversation later on, but is that appreciated, do you think, generally by the community? That how welcoming this this area has been for just that for people from all over the world coming to Western New York? I think it is, certainly in the city itself. I mean, I, I am so grateful to live in a place that our city government and our county government are welcoming with wanting to do things in different languages and wanting to be accessible and recognizing that new people coming in helps our economy. I mean, why has Buffalo been so vibrant? I mean, we've always had a way of being able to plug people in, right? You can come here, afford a house, get a job, contribute, right? And that really, I think, has con been consistent over the last century when you think about the different migration waves that have been going on. Um, we certainly did have population loss um, in the last 50 years. And one of the things that's exciting is the last census in 2020 showed population growth specifically due to the foreign-born. 
Um, Buffalo city population, 10% of it is foreign-born, foreign language speaking. So that just shows you that we're going through a rebirth, and it's very much like the beginning of how we started, which is the place that opens doors to people. You mentioned you used the term uh, like the Ellis Island of Buffalo. I love that. And so I know I don't know if I ever really understood your, the International Institute's connection. How how quickly connected is the International Institute to people who when they do come here? How I mean, maybe take us through that process of when perhaps the International Institute becomes aware that somebody might be coming here from whichever country. Sure. I mean, well, years ago, um, it would be uh, you probably came to us for language classes. Okay. Anyone you meet in this town that's a foreign language speaker, native, probably came to classes at the Institute. <laughs> right. um, and so back then in the day, it was simple casework. I think it was largely funded by charitable organizations to allow us to just help people get into an apartment, get them started. Today, there's more formal programming that comes through federal and state money. And so the Institute literally, literally is your welcoming person. We go to the airport and pick you up. If you are coming through the Federal Refugee Resettlement Program, we know you're coming. We've already rented an apartment for you with federal dollars paying for it. We've set it up. And part of that process is, you know, we orientate you to your new life here. You go through orientation with us about how it is to live and work in America. We work with you to get your kids into school, get you a doctor, get everybody vaccinated. We take you to the store to show you how to shop and where you find things, how to use the bus. And we get the parents into our job club. And we work with them so that way we can actually place them in a job. And we have a, a, a really good list of employers that are willing to work with us and um, be flexible as they bring on people who may not be dominant in English language speaking, but are willing to wait and learn through the process. So today's refugee resettlement programming that we do one aspect of many programs that we right. do, but that is really wraparound, right? It's it's more so um, established in that we help you from the first day through your first year here or longer. Okay. Um, and I'd say that's a difference from years ago where it was like you just sort of showed up and we helped you on the moment with what your needed service was. But the same fact remains. The tenet that I like to talk about is we're welcoming. We want to welcome you to our community and we want to help you integrate here so that you are successful in Buffalo. You know, I know you're the executive director, so you have people that I'm sure take care of all these different aspects to a certain extent. But it just... Just the, the picture, the image of people coming off of a plane into the Buffalo airport and somebody there to greet them. I mean, what do you hear about that from from your folks? Have you ever actually – have you done that or is that, again, maybe I'm somebody that you delegate that to? I guess you have to do a lot of delegation in <laughs> an agency with 70 employees. Um, I I have done airport pickups. Really? Um, I have. It, it's Honestly, it's like the happy part of, of the rainbow. You know, not yeah. every part of serving clients is happy. Sure. Sometimes they're going through trauma or it's tough. Um, I am an immigration lawyer by training, so I always love to go to naturalization ceremonies because that's also like, you know, the end of like a journey. So um, I have done airport pickups before. Of course, our case managers are much better skilled at that than me. Um, but um, sometimes if you go on our website, actually, or our, our Facebook feed, we sometimes will have footage of people arriving. When there's family that are already here, they're called the U.S. Thai. Um, so, for instance, we actually um, we have a member on staff who's Congolese, and um, she came with her parents and sister and brother. And um, they got here before COVID, and then they had to leave another family member behind who wasn't able to be with the family unit. Mm. So when they when that family member came 
um, within the last year, it was a couple months ago, there was a huge family Thai reunion right at the airport. And, you know, we went and, you know, everybody to see them be reunited after three, four years of separation. Um, it's, you know, it's so moving. So sometimes if people allow us, we will we will videotape it and put it on our Facebook. So just people see what that's like. I mean, the refugee journey is hard. No right. one wanted to become a refugee. They were forced into that life because of things they couldn't control, you know, like warfare in their community. They were being targeted for who they are. There's an actual legal definition that spells out, like, what would be a refugee, right? But the point is, is that's not a life someone woke up and chose. And they spent years, if not decades, running, seeking safety to then finally get here and know that, you know, they can have a life again. They can rebuild. And now their family members are able to come and they can reunite. It's such an amazing thing to witness. And it's a great thing to volunteer and be a part of. You know, if you want to help set up that house for that newcomer, if you want to volunteer and mentor somebody in their, you know, early weeks here, we have those opportunities. I just think there's so few moments in life where there's a magical time to be involved in a happiness like that. When you were talking about... Um refugees who come from refugee camps. I had an opportunity to be at the Providence Farm Collective uh, last year and met up quite a few people uh, who obviously were refugees. And one individual talked quite lengthy about his time at the refugee camp in Africa. And it was he was there for a long time before he came to Buffalo. Is it worth talking about? I mean, refugee camps, it becomes just a, a label. It's something. It's a place that we don't really know too much about. We don't see much what's going on inside there. Can you tell tell us a little bit about what you may know or have heard from some refugees about their times in those camps? Sure. I mean, a refugee camp, think of it as like limbo land, mm. right? It's First of all, the camp is not in the country where you're, you were born. Most people who become a refugee are forced out of their country due to their race, religion, you know, nationality. Um, particular social group or political opinion. So they're forced out by the governing party. They end up, if they're able, and the UN has set up next door, a lot of times the United Nations has set up operations um, right outside the border of where there's been a conflict, right? And so, um, so for instance, classic example would be there are refugee camps in Thailand for Burmese refugees. A lot of those refugees are being forced out due to political opinion or the ethnic group that they're a part of. You, you might see in town, like there's the Karen group, the Kareni, Chin, Mon. Those are all ethnic groups that have been forced out. Rohingya is talked about a lot. So someone who ends up in that camp in Thailand, you know, the Thai government doesn't want them. They're never going to be Thai. The Thai government doesn't want them working in Thailand. Mm -hmm. They've allowed the U.N. to set up camps on that border because, you know, that's better for the Thai government than the Thai government to detain all those people. That would be, I'm presuming, very costly. So, you know, the U.N. is running on their resources, um, which is, you know, based on what international country contributions and, and some donations. So they're giving people literally a tiny square package of what their food is. Um, sometimes they run classes for the kids, sometimes not. When I... Uh, talk to kids that have spent years in camps. You know, they're coming in. They may be at eighth grade by age, but they're actually at like a first grade mm. reading level, right? And so that's hard to get them integrated because they've got to learn so much from what they've lost. You know, parents have lost years of their life. They may have been a doctor or a teacher, and now they've just been sitting in a camp waiting. And so when they come here, the job they're going to get is probably going to be you know, landscaping or working in ho cleaning hotel rooms. Um, and so there's a lot of time there for someone to have to sit and accept like what's going on and wait for the next step. And so a lot of trauma probably happened to get them before they got to that camp. 
I do think there's been some time to process what happened. And when they get here, they are so grateful for a second chance, for the ability to make money that's not going to be taken from them, for the ability to put their kid on a school bus and know that they're going to be safe, for the ability to save money and buy a house and a car, that you know they're so happy to do whatever they can to build their next chapter. And I see so much success here in these communities that are building themselves up. You know, there's there's Burmese neighborhoods, Somali neighborhoods, Congolese neighborhoods. These are all people that are like, this is a home that I know I can keep. Stay with us. There's more to come. This is What's Next on WBFO. Hey, is this thing on? Test, test, one, two. Sounds great. Let's go. The podcast world is overflowing with more than 750,000 podcasts to choose from. But for great local podcasts, you can now go to one place, the new Amplify BTPM Pods app. Here you can discover content produced in Western New York and Southern Ontario, our own backyard. With a wide variety of genres to choose from, there is something for everyone. Listen to the best independently produced podcasts in the region anywhere, anytime. Download the free Amplify BTPM Pods app wherever you get your apps and begin exploring your local podcast community now. Buffalo is home to many historical treasures, including architectural gems. Central Terminal affected everybody. Everybody from the common man to the movie star walked this concourse. Beloved community establishments. They might get a glimpse to see Lena Horne. Uh, They might... Uh, see Dizzy or Miles Davis, uh, you know, Charlie Parker. And homes for local sports teams. When we talk about an institution, Memorial Auditorium was an institution. The WNED PBS original production, Remembering Western New York, explores some of these iconic structures and their connection to people who live in the region. There was a time when Buffalo's Main Street was the focus of holiday shopping in Western New York. Watch Remembering Western New York now on YouTube. You're listening to What's Next, our place to discuss the important issues of our communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We want to hear from you. Click on the Talk to Us option in the WBFO app, and we will work to get your questions or comments on the air. Do you have a story or concern that we should be addressing? Email us using what's next at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. We're talking with uh, Jennifer Rizzo-Choi, Executive Director of the International Institute of Buffalo. As you were talking, you've sparked a lot of other questions, but I I don't want to get off of necessarily what the International Institute does. We want to kind of start off with that as as our base here for the conversation. So we go to the airport, we welcome people in, and now... Now the tough work. That's the, like you said, that's a happy moment at the end of the rainbow. Now the work of, of trying to make sure that people are ready to go to be part of the Buffalo and Western New York community. What does the International Institute do then? Well, we really work on trying to get them to a place of self-sufficiency. So refugees who come through that federal resettlement program, and I keep making this distinction because I know you want to at some point talk about asylum seekers, and that's different. So refugees who come through the the resettlement program that's set up by the State Department, which is through our international obligations, um, we work at trying to get them self-sufficient right away. Um, They are put on welfare. The government allows that. And that's really to kind of get them started. And we're given some money by the government to help them get an apartment, um, you know, get it outfitted with the basic things. This is not a lavish setting. Like there's a minimum checklist we have to provide, a certain number of beds, a certain number of towels. 
any way that we can furnish that apartment and not spend money on that so that way we can give them money toward their future, we try to do so. So we always ask for in-kind donations. Um, then we work on figuring out, like, how is this family going to work here? You know, what's the family unit composition? Are there a lot of little kids? Is there an older elder? Um, are both parents ready to get into work or does one have to stay home and be a caregiver? We at least want to find one person who can get into the workforce and we put them into our job club. It's an eight-week program that they go to classes in. Okay. Um, we have outside um, employers come in and do presentations. We work with them on getting a history of what kind of work they did, usually before they became a refugee, to help them prepare a resume that's usable in America. Um, we work with them to practice interviewing so they understand what to expect, teach them soft skills like business cards, networking. Um, we then work with our network of employers. It's a, it's a pretty large network, uh, places like... New Era Cap, Harmac Medical, Landy's Candies Chocolates, um, you know, Marriott Hotels. We, we work with them and say, okay, what are you looking for? They come to us with openings, and then we set up our clients for job interviews. We go with them to the job interview. Um, hopefully they get the job. And then we work with them and the employer. We remain sort of like we're their caseworker officially. I'd say for the employer end, we're somewhat like a mini HR because hmm. they can call us for language support and help in those early months while the person transitions in and um, gets to a place that they understand what's expected and needed in, in the workforce. As you know, I'm sure there's a lot of job openings in this town. There's not enough labor to fill the needs. And so employers are open-minded to working with us because if they can get some hard workers in, they figure – if the challenge is the language, they can learn that skill, right, by teaching them what is needed, and then they can bring in us for language support to teach them the vernacular of the language. So if they're in light industrial, maybe we do a couple of ESL classes related to these are the, the, the words you use in this setting. And so that's that's largely – that's a key part of the process for anybody who's coming here for any um, arriving family unit. There are some people who come in that had a professional skilled background. Um, and we really want to try to get those people back to that level in their life. I would think that's got to be pretty difficult, though, It right? is really hard because of credentialing, because of degrees. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, just because you were a doctor in Afghanistan doesn't mean you can be a doctor here. Um, you know, there's requirements. You'd have to go sit through, like, the U.S., you know, boards and everything again. Mm. So with those people, we have special federal funding through Health and Human Services, um, and we put them into a program called Professional Pathways where we can – um, work with them to look at their background, see what type of degrees and credentials they had, see how that can transfer. So someone who was a doctor in, a, in Afghanistan, to give you an example. I mean, is this a concrete example? or um, This is a concrete okay. example. We, oh, have, wow. we had a surgeon right. from I mean, Afghanistan. Is, okay. Wow. <laughs> that person can uh, go for some classes at ECC um, and do some credentialing and get certifications to allow that person to then work as like a med tech or someone in a hospital setting, right, where they're supporting the healthcare system because they know a lot about healthcare, but they're not going to be the person operating, you know, here on the patient. So we can at least transition that person over and keep them in their career field. And that may be the better choice because they may not be in a position that they can go back for a ton of schooling. Right. Um, the program that we have funding through with the federal the federal government, the um, professional pathways program I talked about, uh, will actually gives us money to pay for some of those classes for people to get them into a couple of classes at ECC or Brightness Strand or, or credentialing online. And we can place them again. So we've been able to do that with people in the finance sector, um, mechanics, uh, people in the medical sector, 
um, teachers to some extent. And um, that's a small pilot program we were funded to do to right. try to say, like, look, you know, we're bringing people in as a humanitarian obligation, but the U.S. can benefit from these skill sets, especially in jobs that have openings. I mean, how many times do we hear about teacher shortages and nursing shortages, right? right? So this is a new um, pilot program we've been working on in the last two years. We also partnered with uh, Leadership Buffalo, which is a nonprofit in town. Um, that has a lot of people who are, you know, going up in their professional careers, and there's a mentoring part with them where we're asking some of the LB participants to mentor one of our professional pathways clients in their career and teach them and introduce them to people. How's that in program town. going? It's been successful so yeah. far. Um, you know, we partner up one on one, and they do. I think it's four or five meetups throughout the year to work with that person on listening to their story. You know, who can I introduce you to in my network? That, you know, could help you move your career along. Oh, you have your first job placement here. You know, what are your goals? How can I help you with getting to that next step? So um, it's a way to sort of say, like, we have our professional setting here in America. But how does that transfer? Like, how do we link somebody from where they did stuff overseas to here? We even have journalists that come in. Really? You know, and, um, you know, it kills me to see somebody who was a journalist overseas persecuted because of their their profession, right, because they were reporting the truth, to then come here and end up driving an Uber. That's just terrible, right? And and that's someone who's literate and can be doing the same kind of things here. And so mentoring and finding a way to connect, I think, is a great next step for our community. And so we're trying to build those processes as well. Um, when you said the journalist, I was like, what can they apply today? But um, <laughs> <laughs> um, just jumping back, though, just a little bit, you t- said about telling their story. Is that something that you Try to <clears throat> encourage um, newcomers to know, have their story, to be able to, to express their story? Because I, I would have to think it's tremendously engaging. I mean, they're fascinating stories. Um, and I've learned a lot of them, especially because I'm an immigration lawyer. So um, I've oftentimes ended up finding out someone's story. But it's really, it's their choice if they want to. Okay. Some people want to talk about it. Um, some people want to close the chapter to everything and not open it up again. And compartmentalizing is an easier way to process that trauma, right? So um, I do think when someone says they're a refugee, there's a understanding universally like, oh, this is someone who you know went through something and fled and now they're starting over here. So that's an easy at least label for employers to understand when we're trying to you know place somebody. Um, but we leave it up to folks if they want to tell the story or not. I mean, each person has a unique story, and there are nuances to the populations. Like, what's going on in Sudan is very different from what's going on in Ukraine, and um, the nature of that conflict and what someone might have gone through, you know, varies, right? Like, how they got out in their journey of escape. Ukraine, since you brought it up, um, how? what is the number, or can we have an idea of how many people from Ukraine have come to western New York and the last, what, what are we looking now, a year, two years? Year, two years? <clears throat> yeah, it was like, uh, what was it, 2022 when that started. So yeah. um, I don't know the exact number. We have a number of Ukrainian clients. Um, uh, President Biden had said that he would allow in up to 100,000 Ukrainians initially. Okay. Um, I mean, the exodus from Ukraine has been much bigger than that. Um, there were at points up to 4 million people that had fled Ukraine and had you know relocated within Europe. And that's an interesting thing to talk about because okay. a lot of refugee crises involve people being displaced and going to a neighboring country and the neighboring country, like in the example of Burma and Thailand, Thailand didn't want them. Right. So they had to live in a camp. Europe actually 
for the first time, I think, in a lot of these crises, said, okay, we're going to let these refugees in, have them move freely within the European Union and give them work permission. And, you know, that's that's a huge, you know, totally different thing to, to allow people that freedom. And that's why I think we haven't seen refugees relocating as much to places like the U.S. or or Australia or Canada from Europe the nature of the the Ukrainian conflict as well is that um, a lot of the people who fled were women, old grandmas, children, and they had to leave behind, you know, males um, mm. of fighting age. So they don't really want to relocate super far away, right? So Europe has definitely absorbed that. I, I don't think it's all gone really well, but they have they have stepped up and made a major humanitarian commitment compared to some of these other countries that just want to get rid of the crisis and pretend like it doesn't exist. So... Um, Ukrainians are not in huge numbers here compared to other populations that are coming in. Um, and they are also not legally labeled a refugee. They're on humanitarian parole. That's a different immigration status, um, which means they're not here permanently. Hmm. So it's even though people think of them as a refugee because they were forced to flee, they are not, in fact, refugees with legal status and the ability to stay and become U.S. citizens in this country. Thanks for joining us today. This is What's Next on WBFO. More to come. Right after this. This is the Buffalo Toronto Public Media History Bite, bringing you a peek into significant historical events for the week of November 13th through the 19th. I'm your host and WBFO Program Director Tom Barich. Western New York is no stranger to fall and winter storms, of course, but on November 13th, 1933, Buffalo experienced an actual dust storm. November 15, 1896 is the day of the first transmission of electricity from Niagara Falls to Buffalo. November 16, 1899 is the day of the very first football game to ever be played in Buffalo. It's easy to think that it may have been a professional football team, but it was Cornell University versus University of Michigan. November 16, 1996, mere hours before a Sabres game, the well-known Jumbotron at the Marine Midland Arena crashed onto the ice. No one was hurt, but I do kind of wish I was there to see that. And sticking with the sports theme, sorta, on November 19th, 1959, Ralph C. Wilson signs the lease for War Memorial Civic Stadium. You've been listening to the Buffalo Toronto Public Media History Bite. Discover more stories about Western New York's past on the Buffalo History Museum's website. Learn more at buffalohistory.org. For Buffalo Toronto Public Media, I'm Tom Barich. WBFO wants to hear about your favorite Thanksgiving traditions. What are your favorite foods, rituals? Tell us your stories by using the Talk to Us feature in the WBFO app. Or call us at 877-997-9236 and leave a message. Then listen to WBFO during Thanksgiving weekend to hear about the wonderful traditions of your neighbors. Birds, whether common or rare, delight me. That's what our new Now We're Birding and Enjoying Nature Club is all about. Oh yes, and the best is being with people who are also interested in wildflowers, animals, and of course, birds. Come along with us, won't you, Peter Hall and me, Stratton Rawson, as we lead monthly excursions to Tift or Rheinstein Woods Nature Preserves. To sign up, go to wned.org front slash birding. You're listening to What's Next, our place to discuss the important issues of our communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We want to hear from you. 
Click on the Talk to Us option in the WBFO app, and we will work to get your questions or comments on the air. Do you have a story or concern that we should be addressing? Email us using what's next at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. We're talking with uh, Jennifer Rizzo Choi this morning on What's Next, Executive Director of the International Institute of Buffalo. This might be a good time then to get into some definitions, right? Sure. I think this is a great opportunity for that because, you know, and we, in our role here at WBFO, we most certainly want to try to uh, be as accurate as we can when it comes to discussing different issues. Uh, certainly, we use the term asylum seekers. You were talking about refugees, and then you were talking about how Ukrainians are fall under a, a different mantle, a different definition to, to a certain extent. Let's break each of those down. I'll, I'll sit back and let you teach and I'll ask questions. How does that sound, <laughs> Jennifer? <laughs> okay, so a little crash course in immigration law. Yeah. Um, so uh, all of these definitions were were set up um, in the frameworks that happened after um, World War II. Okay. okay? That, that was when you know, the UN was created, peace treaties were created, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights came about. And so that, you know, international law eventually gets boiled down into national law when it's adopted. So the definition of a refugee in, in our on our books today in the U.S. is a person who is in, outside of his or her own homeland, who is unable to return home because of a fear of persecution or because they have been persecuted on account of their race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or particular social group. So it's five categories I talked about. Right. Particular social group being sort of a catch-all for tribe or gender. Right. Um, and so you have to be in one of those categories and you have to actually link it to you were persecuted by the government of your national origin because of one of those categories. You have so, to be able to document that or I mean generally yes, but I mean either that or you have to have a you have to be able to explain what happened to you in a way that you are credible and that you can prove it. Wow. So um, not everybody's going to be able to run out of there with like a bunch of police reports and hospital records. Right. You know, if, if you're being persecuted in your country, do you think the police are going to give you, right, <laughs> you know, right. police Tell reports us. saying yes. what happened to you? Right, right. And that's that's the that's the job of lawyers, right, to make okay. a good argument to explain like, uh, okay. you know, the credibility of this person and their their you know what happened, the history, of what happened to them, makes sense. But okay. that's the refugee definition. The refugee definition in our law is awarded to somebody. So when they come here. They come in with that status if they come through that federal resettlement program. So when they come in and they're a refugee granted status under Section 207 of the Immigration Nationality Act, they, they're here permanently. They're given work permission. They're allowed to access government benefits. They get an agency like the Institute to help them find housing and a job, and they move on with their life. They can get a green card. They can pursue citizenship. Someone who shows up and hasn't gotten that adjudication, that definition, that's someone seeking asylum. The definition of asylum is the same. You have to prove the persecution, the fleeing, the protected ground. But until you've gone through that process, you are only seeking asylum, okay? You haven't been granted it. And so you are not coming in with all those protections. You're not coming in with work permission right. or you don't have eligibility for welfare or food stamps. And so that's what we see happening right now. And this this very large topic about the people in the hotels or what are being called the migrants, right? People who cross the border, um, have not become, they may look like a refugee, but they were not granted refugee status. They are asylum seekers. When they are granted asylum by a court or by an officer, then they're an asylee, and it's the same status as a refugee. But until then, they're in the category of waiting. Right. 
And that's where a lot of these problems have become opened up with like who's paying for their housing and their food and their ability to be here. Just to go off on a bit of a tangent, though, if I'm not mistaken, quite a few people are from Venezuela, which has had tremendous political upheaval. Why what why isn't there as best you can explain it? Why hasn't there been a a simpler transition to (laughs) to define these people as just that refugees, people who are fleeing persecution in their home country. Oh, you just landed on another immigration status. Okay. TPS. TPS. Temporary protected status uh, for Venezuelans in particular. Okay. So, okay, to the root of your question, why hasn't that been sorted out? Well, sure. I would say generally because of politics. Um, well, immigration yeah. has been a very hot button issue. We understand that, sure. For the last, you know, several decades. Right. And um when someone's granted a status like refugee, they're allowed to stay in this country. And unfortunately, that's been a political football for a long time. So the Venezuelans who are coming in um, are asylum seekers if they want to put forth that claim. Um, President Biden did create a special category called TPS for some Venezuelan entrants who had to, you have to meet criteria like you entered at a certain date. And if you apply for TPS, if you qualify, that's Literally, the word, the T in it is temporary, protected status. It puts you to a place where you can get a work permit, but you're not here permanently. It's going to end within 18 months, usually. You'd have to see if they're going to allow you to renew it or not. That's an executive decision, like executive by the president's office and USCIS. So they moved Venezuelans into a temporary category, which is what the government tends to do when they can't get Congress to act on a whole group of people. Okay. And so they create these special categories to kind of like band-aid it, but it's not a permanent solution. TPS never leads to citizenship. Refugee status leads to citizenship. Asylee, granted asylum, leads to citizenship. Green card leads to citizenship. TPS does not. Okay. Humanitarian parole, which I mentioned the Ukrainians are on right now, that does not lead to citizenship. It's a parole, the word meaning you're paroled here for humanitarian reason temporarily for like a given amount of time, usually two years. And then again, you'd have to wait to see if the government will let you renew it. Um, People who are on HP, Ukrainians as an example, um, if they want to stay here permanently, they would need to change their status by applying for asylum and going through that that adjudication to try to prove that they have to stay. Asylum is meant to say we recognize as a as a country as a participant in our international like partnerships that you can't go home. So we're going to make you ours. And that's the asylum process, and we have to make sure you are who you say you are, that you've you know, elucidated a credible claim, and that it fits within our constraints of the law, and we will let you stay. It's a very hard burden to prove, and it's not given to many people. And what we have going on in recent years is a lot of people showing up here in need because they can't stay where they are, but they're not able to go through our system or meet this definition and stay here long term. And is there any path then beyond that, though, for citizenship for or not at all? No, I mean, asylum is the main vehicle for people who are um, fleeing violence. Um, there are some very narrow areas, like if you were trafficked, there's a trafficking visa category mm. because someone's cooperating in the prosecution of the traffickers. Um, uh, there's a category for um, violence against women, um, again, because we want to make sure that the people who are uh, purporting to do violence are, are, you know, handled by the law. But there's very narrow grounds for humanitarian status. Hmm. Um, And and the U.S. has been very specific in that they've never granted humanitarian relief to stay here on economic grounds. 
those categories I went through with you before, those right. are all based on things that are called immutable characteristics, things you cannot change about yourself, the color of your skin, the religion and culture you were born into, the tribe you're from. You can't change that. You may choose to not participate in that religion or that tribe, but you can't change it. Right. And so if you're being persecuted because you're perceived to be part of that, that's what we would give you relief to allow to stay here and, and have a new life, not because you don't have enough money or food or water in your community. That the U.S. has always been firm on. That's not enough to be granted permanent humanitarian grounds to stay here. You touched upon uh, people who have been trafficked. We do hear a little bit about that. How prevalent are you seeing that? Uh, how much of that are you actually seeing or, uh, here in western New York and people that are showing up here? There is a lot of trafficking that's happening oh. in our community and, and, quite frankly, in our country overall. The Institute actually a lot. has— a lot. It is. It is because trafficking you know, happens both in labor trafficking and sex trafficking, and it's, it's a modern-day slavery. It's taking advantage of people who can be exploited, often because they're immigrants and they're undocumented mm -hmm. or they came in without you know, getting permission. So people are easily exploited. Like they're able to unfortunately exploit those people by controlling them— you know, threatening to report them to immigration to get deported, making them pay off the coyote who got them here, um, making them work for wages that are not, you know, fair market, you know, set minimum wage. Um, the Institute actually runs uh, a program um, where we support survivors of immigrant survivors of human trafficking and domestic violence. And, um, you know, last year we served about 600 people in that program. Yeah. I know. Um, and some were kids, uh, predominantly women. Um, people who are trafficked um, are – it's all different scenarios, but we're seeing it in agriculture, restaurant settings, hotels with sex work. Um, you know, it, it sort of runs the gamut. But if, if somebody is a trafficking victim and they are referred to us – then we can work with them to do the same set of stuff. We'll work with them to get them enrolled for public benefits, find them an apartment. We will help um, if they want to cooperate with the prosecution of the traffickers. We will work with law enforcement to serve as an advocate, go with them to hearings, you know, to bring language access so they can do interviews. Um, the, gov the government is obviously very invested in trying to stop trafficking and the exploitation of people. So um, when these things can be unearthed, then they want to go after that. And the reason for a trafficking visa you asked about, is there any yep. other way to stay? Well, if someone is a victim of trafficking, if they cooperate in the prosecution of the traffickers, then they would be granted the ability to stay in this country. But you use the word cooperate. Yes. Uh, I would, I'm, I'm going to step out uh, on my assumption here that some people probably fear that. Don't want that. to. Don't right? want to be involved it's in that. It's scary. Right. And especially if you... You know, if you got trapped up in this mess because you were trying to send money home to your family, because you were, you know, put into this by your family, uh, yeah, it would be a big leap and a jump to try to think that this was all going to work out well for you. And people are very afraid, for sure. Um, that is where the Institute's advocates step in. We try to be that bridge between law enforcement and the client um, to say, I know you don't trust them, but look, we speak your language. You can trust us. You know, let us explain this process to you. Let us introduce you to people who've already gone through this, and you can talk to them and see where they are today. So we try to be that conduit because law enforcement does have a tough time trying to find and stop violence in immigrant communities because immigrant communities are afraid to approach and ask for help. And have you had success, though, with uh, trying to lead some of these victims into 
following that, that path and helping with prosecution? We have. Okay. It's, it's a lot of hard work. I bet. And it takes time. Um, there are task forces that have been established to have partnerships, you know, strengthen between um, DA's office, U.S. Attorney's office, Sheriff's office, like so law enforcement, prosecution, you know, social services agencies. It's, it's a lot of work. And it's happening around the country as well. And recognizing that, you know, police aren't alone going to stop this problem. It's got to be a community effort to stop people who are exploiting um, the most vulnerable in our community. All right. So have we covered all the definitions yet? Not not yet, huh? I, let's see here. We've talked about refugee. We've talked right. about asylum and asylum seeker. Yeah. Uh, we've talked about TBS and we've talked about humanitarian parole. I think we might have. Okay. In terms of the humanitarian grounds. There's obviously all other kind of categories of immigrants. There's people who come on student visas and, you know, nursing visas and visitors. I mean, but those are all people going through the legal immigration process. Right. Um, you know, where they have money and they're able to apply and go through that process to come here as a visitor in some way. As the executive director of uh, the International Institute and also an immigration lawyer, what do you think of the term that gets thrown around as migrants? What's your thought on that? Since we're talking language here. Well, I, I prefer it to undocumented or illegal. Okay. Because um, I don't like saying, I mean, no human is illegal. That's a terrible label to give right. to somebody. Right. Um, migrant, to me, at least takes on um, the context of the genre of what is going on, which is that they have migrated um, as a verb, right? right. <laughs> From one place sure. to another. Accurate. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I think a lot of what those folks are are asylum seekers, and I'd rather that word be used. I don't like when the word refugee is used because we have a, a legal definition sure. for it here, and they haven't. If you're gone a refugee, you're a refugee, right? If you're not, it's different. Yeah, right. Okay. So right. migrant, um, at least, it sort of gives reference to the fact that they migrated from where they were to where they are now, and um, and I know this has been a very political and controversial topic, you know, because there's a lot of people came to New York City, and now people have been transferred to Buffalo. But what I would just say is, beyond all of the what's the happening in today stuff. We need to really look at the fact that the U.N. today says, um, you know, there's more than 40 million uh, refugees identified worldwide. Refugees, yeah. They're signed up with them. Um, There's, if you look at internally displaced persons, that's another definition the U.N. uses. That's like over like 80 million. Um, And those are people who are just outside of their country of origin for now, right, but haven't gotten a label of humanitarian protection. And the U.N. is looking ahead 20 years and talking about how their climate change, without it being addressed, is going to create climate refugees. So people who are going to become a refugee because their homeland disappeared, like eroded by the ocean. So, you know, this is... We have what's going on local, micro, in your community today. But this is going to be an ongoing topic for the next 20 to 30 years unless changes are made. And I'm not here to talk about climate change today other than to say in my world this is being discussed, that the number of refugees or people who don't have a home is only projected to grow. How would you, as somebody, again, who's vested in this, and it sounds like you and your peers are having conversations about this and understanding what's coming, how should – you know, the average person understands, like you said, it, this this isn't going to change. This is going to get larger. How should this conversation and perhaps policy move forward? I mean, how how can, other than just these kind of conversations here, I guess, how would you like to see people think about this and to contemplate this issue? Because it's you, you, you've touched on something here that's it's big. It's really big. I mean, and it's going to get bigger. It is going to get bigger. Um, 
I mean, it was something I was aware of years ago, but I, I recently went through an MBA program and they did a whole UN model simulation on, on climate change. And I was then thinking about the implications with the refugees and the numbers. And I, it was really hitting me in a much bigger way, um, like back in 2019. Mm. And it's only since become something you see now. It's like a news article that pops up the New York Times once a month sure. now talking about this. But to go to your question, you're asking, like, what needs to be done? I mean, I, I'm not elected in government. Right. Um uh, you know, so I'm not one who's getting sitting in a decision making role. But I mean, it, off the top of my head, if we're going to talk about globally and then we're going to talk about nationally, globally, uh, all of these wars need to stop. This Russia Ukraine drama, you know, Afghanistan, Sudan, um, Palestine, Israel, like all of that is just creating more displaced people and conflict. You know, there are going to be places where it's not habitable soon. Because so much has been pummeled to the ground. So, you know, having all these raging conflicts going on when we're having, an, you know, a climate change issue that's going to erode sea lines, it, it's like there's, you know, it's not, that's not working together, sure. right? And so the UN has been sending out a lot of smoke signals about this is just like really bad from a people management perspective globally. Um, if you look nationally, um, you know, the number of people that we let in is very small. There are people who are coming in. I'm sure someone would dispute that statement. So let right. me let me clarify. Please do. It. So there are people who are showing up without planning at our border that are migrants who need to seek asylum. That's different from the number that are actually allowed in through federal programs. The refugee resettlement program is a number that's set every year by the president. The ceiling this year is 125,000 people. 125,000 refugees for resettlement, like sort of the case management stuff I just walked you right. through that we do, right? Yes. That's compared to the, I think, 2 million people that crossed the border last year, um, that some of whom or many, many would be asylum seekers um, granted asylum. Sure. So um, we're only having a program for 125,000. President Biden has created some small categories like TPS, we call for the Venezuelans. I think, I don't know, 50,000 were allowed to go into that. And there's these small little cut-asides, right? But we're not dealing with the larger number that's continuing to show up every day, which is always in the news, the Border Patrol struggling with, right? So thinking about that and figuring out ways to solve that. Um, our court system here is beleaguered. Our immigration system, court system, is super outdated. It's not resourced. If you come in as an asylum seeker and they give you a court date, you're looking at a court date that's four or five years from now. So, And during that time, you may or may not be have status to be allowed to work. Right. You'd have to apply for asylum, get a work permit. There's a long process. You're going to have to rely on charity or in this case, the people have come to New York State and New York State's paying for it. Um, so yeah, that's not practical to have that many people in a limbo land. Right. That's what New York State is struggling with right now. There were 100,000 people transferred from the border to New York City and New York City is paying the bill for that through state dollars as well, but that's why it's not working because right. they don't have enough shelter for all those people. That's why they've been sending them on buses to places like Buffalo and Rochester. So let's start looking at that and saying, okay, is this system really right that they now have to wait six months or more to apply for an, a work card? It might take a year to get a work card so they can actually care for themselves. Looking at that system and addressing it in some way, you know, figuring out a way that they can get temporary work status or they can maybe we resource the court system so there's they can be their process can be adjudicated faster. Some people are not going to qualify for our legal definition and they're going to be deported. Okay. Why does it have to take five years for that to happen? Right, right. 
and they should have their day in court. We have a fair and just system here. We should be able to have people go through that and see if they can you know, achieve protection here under our laws. So um, looking at that process and trying to move it along, and then also looking at the U.S.'s labor needs. There's been a large unemployment number. The people have been retiring out of the workforce. We need people doing manual labor and agricultural support. We need nurses and teachers. And this is a labor supply that's coming in if they were allowed to work. So, you know, obviously figuring out a fair process for that, making sure there aren't any bad actors involved in that. Right. Um, but instead, we just seem to be running in circles with political fights. So I'm just saying I'm not a decision maker in this seat, yep. but the numbers are only going to increase and we continue to just ignore the problem and not address it with root cause solutions. We are talking with Jennifer Rizzo-Choi, Executive Director of the International Institute of Buffalo. And I appreciate the conversation you got in there. We we maybe uh, veered off a little bit from the, the Institute and some of the things that are, are going on there. And I do want to touch on just a couple of them just to make sure we hit them before uh, we finish. But I know you have a, a talk coming up uh, from a gentleman that I saw. and Because uh, we did touch earlier about how Europe is right now generally – accepting of Ukrainian people that are uh, being displaced. But yet there is um, the politics of Europe are changing, it seems, as well. It sounds to me, if I'm not mistaken, this gentleman is going to have quite a bit of insight into what that landscape is all about. Talk about that event that's coming up. Yeah, we're excited, hopefully, hoping that people will want to come and participate. This goes into one of our other programs that we do, International Exchanges and Education. We try to do educational talks. We run the Model UN program for the high schools in our region. Um, we run cultural competency trainings for employers, and, and we run international talks like this. Right. So we were excited when this scholar reached out to us. He's an international scholar named um, Dr. Martin Nicola, um, trained um, trained from um, the University in Prague, and um, his whole study area is Europe um, and European affairs. And so he's going to come in and give a talk about the rise of populism in Europe and the war in Ukraine. Um, and he's going to be talking about the things that are going to drive Europe's future, which is the rise in populism, mostly by right-wing groups, which are creating uncertainty and instability. And he's going to talk about Russia's invasion of Ukraine with all of the humanitarian, environmental, economic, and political consequences that come with that. So um, we're excited to host him at our building and, and have people come in and just have a like listen to him and have a Q&A session. Um, we do these periodically right. when we have the ability to – this is sort of – we want to help continue to help – Educate people and recognize that Buffalo is a global place. We have Ukrainian refugees here as well as, as well as so many other refugees, and so we love the public to come and listen to his talk. What's the uh, date on that? It's uh, thanks for asking. I know it's I Tuesday, know it. <laughs> end of this month, coming up right after Thanksgiving, Tuesday, November twenty eighth at six p.m. at the Institute. If you'd like to buy tickets, uh, it's fifteen dollars. You can go on our website um, www.iibuffalo.org. And also, you have um, your the possibility to sponsor a refugee family for the holidays. Yes, we would love for the public to participate. Um, we find this is the you know the gift giving time of year. Um, instead of you know a white elephant for your family and extended relatives or coworkers, maybe this is the time to say, hey, let's all get together and that fifteen bucks we were going to spend on silly gifts. <laughs> how about we pull, pull it all and we adopt a family for the holidays? So the institute has lined up 
um, refugee families that are recent arrivals and also survivor families, um, survivors of trafficking and domestic violence. And so we've asked them to give us their wish list. So you can choose to sponsor a family based on like monetary level. If you want to, you know, do $500, $1,000, you can choose to sponsor a specific kind of family from like Congo, Somalia, like we'll give you a list and you'll be given a shopping list um, for what they want. It's stuff that really they're their budget can't provide for if they're on you know limited budget welfare maybe one person has a job a lot of things people wanted last year were like microwaves mm. money toward a like a washing machine um you know like athletic gear for their kids in school they just don't have the means to pay for that type of stuff so it's a custom list per family you get matched with the family buy the stuff get it to us by the middle of december and then we play santa claus and deliver it to them oh that sounds like fun yep. being a being santa claus there um, just want to touch on a, a couple other things and then our time is going to, to run out here. And I know I see my f- former colleague uh, and uh, classmate Gabe DeMeo over there scribbling at, at stuff to make sure that it gets on the air over here. But um, <laughs> you decided to become an immigration lawyer. What drove you to do that? Well, I was in radio and TV like you many years ago in my first and So career. you and Gabe can show us that there's skilled labor ahead for people like me. Anyway. There's life ahead, right? Um, I, you know, the stories that the stories that always drew me to this when I was a reporter were the human stories. Um, and um, I, I spent a lot of time in Florida working, and there were a lot of migrants and immigrants um, down there. And when the hurricane happened down there, when I was down there covering that, you know, the communities that were devastated by it were the migrant communities Mm. in particular. There was no government support. And um, this was just one of those things that I just was like, you know, I want to go get more education. So I ended up going to law school. And this whole area just fascinated me. Um, It's it's at the end of the day, it's 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 human stories. And each person has a chance at, you know, the American dream, at success, at helping their family. And, you know, going into this work is very meaningful because, you know, what we can do is actually help people succeed. And it it also has this amazing effect of helping our community be so much more enriched. Right. And it, we didn't really even get into that a lot. I mean, we've, you know, we had the kind of general statement that Buffalo is a, a, a community of immigrants, but the Im- immigrant and more specifically refugee population in the last 10 to 15 years has really transformed a a good portion of Buffalo, hasn't it? It has. I mean, it used to be years ago, you'd have to drive to Toronto to get like international culture. Now, drive over to the West Side. I mean, the West Side Bazaar just opened recently with like all those restaurants. Um, There's Buffalo Fresh. I mean, there's so many, you know, ethnic cuisines, so many things you can, you know, learn about, languages you're hearing spoken. We're so diverse. Um, that's amazing to me, you know, that, that we are so much more diverse than some of our other cities in the world. Um, and you have the ability to sort of travel through the, the, the globe just by being here in Buffalo between the, the food and the culture and the people who are coming here to visit. Um, of course, we we try to capitalize on that. The Institute puts together a map for adventurous eaters. I did see that. That yes. is really exciting, actually. Yes. So if you're a foodie or you want to be adventurous, um, you know, it's a way to, to learn more about us, but also, you know, have a great night out. So we're actually working on updating the map right now. It's going to eventually be an app. Um, uh, so you can easily, when you're looking for a date night out, just right. go on the app and figure it out. Um, we're also a place that, you know, if you want to to learn more about culture, you can come to our talks. We're working on getting language classes back on site since COVID. Um, the Institute runs a robust interpretation and translation business. 
So that's cool because it's a small business that pumps money back into our charitable operation. So you offer to businesses and such like courts, that? Right, schools. Court. Okay. Um, you know, you can hire us to have an interpreter if you know you're a teacher and you need to interact. How with many the languages student. do you have at, at your disposal? Over sixty. Oh my. Yep, yeah, and we okay. can get somebody there um, if you want it online within you know a minute's notice. I mean, generally within the next day if you want someone on your air <laughs> in another language, we can do that. All right, we'll keep that um, in mind. Yeah, you know, absolutely. and and we translate documents too. So if you're going through boxes looking for a unique, you know, uh, present for somebody for the holidays, uh, as I did for my dad a couple years ago, you might find some old family documents. I found my grandpa's Italian passport. Oh my! I had it translated and framed and matted and. You know, best Christmas present I ever gave, it seems like. Wow. Um, so, you know, you might find some old marriage documents or photos. Those are all things that we can help you with, you know, to sort of tell your own family story. Because at the end of the day, we are all immigrants. We all came Absolutely. from somewhere else. Absolutely. Well, Jennifer Rizzo Choi of the International Institute of Buffalo, thanks very much for uh, uh, really uh, giving us a, a great hour of uh, conversation here on What's Next. Thanks for the conversation. It was fun. This is What's Next on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOL and only on WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.